Um, so if you turn to 857 in the Bibles. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he, he had seen the Lord, Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought him, brought him the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said... Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the re revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to, said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Well, let me have my warm welcome to you if um, you've just come in since the start of the service. Uh, my name's Hin Tai. I'm one of the ministry assistants here. And it's lovely to see so many of you here this morning and lovely to see lots of guests and new faces. You're really welcome here. Um, great to see lots of my colleagues as well. Um, a lot of you have offered already, but if you, want have, if you have any feedback for me, remember to CC pastoral feedback <laughs> at mcsbrent.co.uk. So, um, great to be here with you this morning. Now, here we see the scene, a Christmas scene of Jesus being presented at the temple. Now, I had a similar experience, huh? you might be thinking. I had a similar experience a few weeks ago where I had the privilege of this. Now, um, in case you're surprised, don't worry, Steph has not been pregnant and given birth um, mysteriously, but this is myself and my wife, Steph, with our goddaughter, Isabel Pate. And she was three and a half days old in this photo, very small, very young, and it was an absolute joy and delight to hold her in our arms. And just to let you in on a little secret there, it was a very emotional moment for us. Um, I still remember when um, her actual parents talked to me and Steph and said, oh, we'd love you to, there's something we'd like to talk to you about. And we were quite scared at first. Oh gosh, what have we done now? Um, what, what, what is this that they need to talk to us about? But when they said, we'd love you to be godparents for our daughter, we just burst into tears. We just burst into tears. It was such a joyful moment to be asked and even more joyful to hold her in our arms. I remember um, Isabel's grandma was there, and I'd pass her over to Steph, but when I was holding Isabel in my arms there, um, grandma said, oh, you're doing really well there, Hintai. And I think she was just assuming that I'd want to pass her back to her parents, but I wanted to keep on hold of her as long as I possibly could. It was such a delight to have her there. It wouldn't feel like I was doing well at all. It was just such a pleasure. There's something similar in the passage that we've just read here, where 
Mary and Joseph are taking Jesus to the temple. And they're there to offer sacrifices for him. And as Iona so well read for us, um, we see something strange happening as amidst the busyness of Jerusalem. They're coming in. They've got their baby in their arms. And this man who I presume they don't really know, this man called Simeon, comes up to them and he says, oh, that's a beautiful boy. May I hold him? And they say, sure, of course. And he holds them. And there he experiences joy as well, but a joy far deeper, a joy far more profound than the joy I experienced, even though it was great, holding Isabel. Somehow this man, Simeon, sees this baby and he can say these words, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace. Now you're letting your servant depart in peace. Other translations say it as, now you can dismiss your servant in peace. And it's such a powerful and strange and famous phrase that if you've ever been to a Church of England church, you might have realized that this is sung as part of the liturgy, the nunc dimittis, Latin for um, some of these words. You can dismiss your servant in peace. Here, Simeon's holding this baby and he's filled with joy, a joy so deep, a joy so profound, that he can actually say, Lord, I can die now. I can die now. My life is complete. My life is, is done. This is the pinnacle. This is what I've been waiting for my whole life. Now, I wouldn't recommend that you go to any of the babies at church and hold them and say this. It might come across a bit strangely. But something strange is happening here, as, as Simeon says that phrase. It's a famous phrase, and with good reason. And actually, as we think about it, it's a phrase that, even if we won't say that when we see a baby... We do want to say that phrase when we reach the end of our lives. We do want to be able to say, I can die in peace. Sometimes we use that phrase casually. Uh, if you think back to the Champions League semi-finals of the last season, some incredible football scenes there where lots of fans of football teams were saying, this is it, I've seen everything. I think I remember um, a columnist in the Times saying, this was the highest moment of my life when one of the teams came back from their um, impossible seeming odds. I can now die in peace. They don't mean that seriously, it's slightly flippantly said, but still, this is something that deep down that every human being longs for in the bottom of our heart. We want to be able to say, Lord, God, you can now dismiss me, I can depart this life in peace. It's something we all want to be able to say. We all have the pursuit of peace as one of our goals. And I think we see here in what Simeon says, three ingredients to that pursuit of peace, three ingredients. He uses three relatively long words that are quite unfamiliar, but I think their meaning is um, a bit more straightforward when you plunge into them. Why can Simeon die in peace? First, he sees salvation. My eyes have seen your salvation. A simple way to put that is he has seen solutions to some of his deepest problems. He's seen solutions to his deepest problems. The next thing he sees is revelation. Revelation, like a light bulb going off. Answers coming to some of his deepest questions. Truths learnt that finally make sense of things, of questions that he's been asking his whole life. He's got problems suddenly solved. He's got questions suddenly answered. Finally, he says glory. Glory. Now, what does that mean? It's not a word we use very often. Um, the Hebrew word for glory simply just means wait. There is something about this answer. There is something about these solutions 
that suddenly gives his life weight, integrity, a wholeness, a depth about it. And I think we can all agree that those are three ingredients that do make for a life where we can say, I've achieved peace. I can leave this life in peace. If we see that our problems are answered, if we see that our questions have solutions, and if we sense that at the end of our lives we have done something weighty, worthy, glorious with them, then we can say, I can die in peace now. Answers, solutions, and a weight about them. I think that's what it takes to get peace. But things get in our way. We have problems. We have questions that we don't know the answers to. And I think we pursue peace in broadly three ways. Three ways that we try and answer these problems. Three ways that we try and answer these questions. The first way, I think, that this happens earlier on in life is through the pursuit of pleasure. The pursuit of pleasure, hedonism if you will. Now, this seems on the surface of it, especially in our youth, like it is a good way of achieving peace. I'm sure you've all been on holidays where you have just sat by the beach, the water's lapping by your toes, the sun is shining on your skin, and you're being burnt to a gentle crisp. And you have felt, ah, this is the life. This is peace. All my worries are literally hundreds of miles away. Here I am. This is it. But sadly, those holidays come to an end and you replace the beach with Stansted Airport and it's grey and it's wet and it's drizzling. Or you think you have a fantastic party, Christmas is coming up, we have our staff party coming from Friday, it's going to be loads of fun, but then Saturday morning follows Friday night, or rather Saturday afternoon, we might say. Or even just thinking about this season, We've got Christmas coming up and lots of good things to look forward to, but January follows December. There is a measure of peace that pleasure can give us, but it seems so temporary. It seems so transient, so fleeting. And those are some of the big things that we look forward to in life, some of the big pleasures that we build up to, but we might try and resolve that by having just regular daily pleasures, eating well, seeing fun things at the theater, having good hobbies that we invest a lot of time and pleasure in. But there's also an irritating fact about life as well. I'm uh, an economics teacher as well as working for the church, and um, my students have just been learning about the law of diminishing marginal utility. Uh, it might be familiar to some of you. But all that really means is that I remember the first time Steph and I really splashed out on a fancy dinner to celebrate something. And oh, I could basically remember every single bite of that meal. Each course seemed to be better than the last, and at the end of it, the bill was expensive, but you just thought, wow, I can see now why the food costs this much. And then another anniversary or birthday rolls around, and we go to another restaurant. And it's great, but the second course wasn't quite as good as the starter. Or, oh, that dessert, yeah, it was all right. And the bill just seems a bit more painful to pay this time. Or, oh, this fish dish wasn't quite as good as the one we had at the other place. And the novelty starts to wear off, and the pleasures start to fade. And... It just feels like nothing seems to have the same joy, the same excitement as it had the first time round when we experienced it. So there's no lasting peace through the pursuit of pleasure. It feels like sand just slipping through our fingers that we're trying to hold on to, but at the end we're looking at, we're looking down at it and there's nothing really left. 
There's also a more sophisticated version, I think, of pursuing pleasure, and that's the pleasure of achieving goals, ticking off your um, bucket list, um, getting through your hashtag life goals and saying, yes, I've done this thing that I've always wanted to do, or I've had this ambition that I've finally achieved, or I've made my goal weight, or I've cooked this thing that I've always wanted to learn how to do. There are these sophisticated pleasures, the pleasure of achieving goals, yet fundamentally, you reach a goal weight and you realize, I haven't really changed. I'm still the same person. I'm still facing the same hang-ups, the same insecurities, the same problems. And really, that gets us to the heart of the problem with the pursuit of pleasure. It's that we're not really facing up to the real problems in our life. We're not really answering the real questions. Remember, that's what we said requires uh, uh, the achievement of peace. We need to answer our questions. We need to solve our problems. And when we pursue pleasures, yeah, they feel good in the moment, but we reach them, and soon we don't know really what's left. We haven't really addressed the right problems or questions. And as a result, our life lacks this glory, this weight about it. It just feels so insubstantial. We know that pursuing pleasure is not enough to really satisfy us in life. We can't look back on a life and say, yeah, I experienced some really fun things and actually depart in peace. So that's the pursuit of pleasure. It's not enough. It's not enough. The second thing I think people turn to when they realize, yeah, I've had a pleasurable life, but it doesn't seem enough, is I think lots of people turn to the pursuit of a good life, a meaningful life, an ethical life, a moral life, a life where they are trying to do something purposeful with their lives. Now, this is probably what you're expecting. You're here at church for the first time think, yes, here it is. Christianity is about not the shallow pleasures of the short term, but something meaningful and deep in life. And yes, there is a measure of peace about this. Yes, I don't want to deny that completely, and I'm not going to. When people trade in pleasures for purpose, they find that actually that does satisfy a deeper itch. I know my wife, Steph, she left a job in the city that was well paid to become a teacher. But every day of her life, she felt much more satisfied doing that harder, uh, more difficult job compared to making more money in the city. You might start volunteering or helping out as a hobby, and that seems like it brings more joy than the previous selfish hobby, the self-centered pleasurable one that you used to do. But really, actually, if the problem with pleasure is that it's not enough, I think the problem with living a good life is that it's too much. It's too heavy. What do I mean by this? Well, let's just look back at Simeon. Here is a description of a man who is living a good life. I'll just read from the top again. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout. Two striking terms. I wonder how many people in your life you could say, that's a righteous man. That's a devout man. Simeon's the sort of guy that you've got a problem at 3 a.m. in the morning and you think, who should we call? We'll call Simeon. And he's the sort of guy as well that will actually answer the phone and pick it up and not be too groggy. He's the sort of man who, at his parents' funeral, he was shaking everyone's hand and thanking them for coming and arranging all of the details whilst everyone else had the space to grieve. He's a spiritual man as well. He's devout. We also see that the Holy Spirit was upon him. He has a depth, a spirituality about his character. Surely this is the way to live a life at peace. But just look at what's nestled in between those three attributes. Yes, he's devout. Yes, he's righteous. Yes, the Holy Spirit is upon him. But because of these things, he is waiting for the consolation 
of Israel. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, consolation, it's quite a strong word. It's the sort of word you have when everything in your life has gone wrong and you're just looking for a giant pair of arms to just come wrap themselves around you and tell you convincingly that it's all going to be okay. Simeon is righteous, but he's still waiting for consolation, not just for himself, but for his whole nation, for Israel. And that gives us a key into the limitations of the ethical life, of doing good. It's that it's too much. Because when you start trying to live a good life, it's a bit like you when you pulled out the Christmas jumper for the season and you see there's a thread loose and you start pulling the thread and it just keeps on going and the pattern starts to unravel. The problem is when you start caring about doing good, where do you stop? How can you stop? When you open up your heart truly to the sorrows, the suffering, the sadnesses of this life, where do you draw a line? Yes, you are starting to face up to the right problems. You're starting to try and answer the right questions. There is a weight about your life, but the weight feels overwhelming, and it is overwhelming. I've experienced this as a teacher, um, especially as a head of year looking after um, a large number of pupils, and I just remember a conversation I had with a colleague just this last week where he was saying to me, how do you deal with it when you just get home and you're just worrying about, you're just worrying about the pupils? You're just worrying, oh, my mind's just thinking about them. It's a great question. You start caring about them, and you just find, how do I stop? How do I draw a line? The weight just becomes too much. It becomes overwhelming. That's what we see with Simeon. We're on the right path, but it's too much for us to handle. Where does this lead us? We've had an attempt to address peace with pleasure, an attempt to address peace, achieve peace with um, living the good life. And I think when we've tried that, and again, this is what happens often chronologically in life, when you've tried that, what happens left? What, what you're left with is, I think, cynicism. You just become a cynical person. You realize the burdens of this world are too hard for you to carry, so you start to just stop caring. You start to shut down your heart. You start to shrivel those goals and those aspirations that you had to do some good in this world. And you'll achieve a measure of peace about that. You know, you might say things like, well, got to be grateful for what I have. At least I'm not as bad as this person. I've got this, this, this. I can be grateful for that. But the problem with cynicism is that it's an attempt to stop answering these questions. You basically just stop addressing the problems of the world. And as you shrivel up your concerns, you also shrivel up your heart. You also shrivel up your life. And I think C.S. Lewis was uh, one of the best people who expressed this. What happens when you become cynical and you stop caring? Here's what he says. There is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. That's what happens when you try and live a good life. Your heart breaks for these kids, for, for these disasters, for, for these mundane problems in those you love and care about. So what do we do in response? Well, if you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies, with Netflix, with wine, with sport and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. 
that in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. That's the problem, really, with cynicism. So, pleasure, it's not enough. The good life, it's too much. Cynicism, we don't want to be like that. At Christmas time, you're probably seeing an older relative of yours who is pretty much a cynic, and no one thinks to themselves, yeah, when I'm 55, I want to be like my uncle this, or my auntie this. But it happens as a response, as a response to the difficulty of achieving peace in this world. So, what do we do about this? What do we do about these ways of trying to achieve peace? Where can we go to seek a life that we can leave in peace? Let's look at where Simeon looks to. He's a good man. He's waiting. But what's he waiting for? Middle of the passage. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Simeon's waiting here. He's waiting for something very definite. He's waiting for the Lord's Christ. Now, you probably think there's a missing word there, the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is it. This is a prophecy. This is a prediction about Jesus. The word Christ here, what it means is it encapsulates all the promises that we had well read for us from Isaiah, from other parts of the Bible, where God is saying there is going to be someone who is going to show you how to live a life of peace. There is going to be someone. He's going to come and he is going to do it. He is going to live a life that will attain answers to his questions solutions to his problems. That person is Jesus. Let's see one of those prophecies that we had read earlier. From the Old Testament, one of the promises of this Christ. Who is this person going to be? To us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And if you're new to church and you don't come very often, you might be thinking, aha, this is it. This is what Christians come to church for. They come to church to hear about Jesus, and Jesus will teach us how to get peace, how to live the good life, how to be strong, how to keep fighting, even though we're tempted to be cynical. And yes, that's true to a degree. Look at this description of Jesus Christ. Look at this promise. Look at some of the things that are said about him. Firstly, the government will be on his shoulder. That's quite a powerful phrase as we think about the election coming up. This will be a man who will bear significant responsibility upon himself. And how will he do it? His name should be called Wonderful Counselor. There is going to be someone who's going to live a life where he can sit you down on a therapy couch. He can cut through the heart of all your deepest problems and he can say, this is the solution. And as we read on from the life of Jesus in the Gospels, this is what we see. We see someone who has such wisdom that it's controversial even today, 2,000 years later. Someone who says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. I remember when, uh, one time I was in China and I heard a story of um, a Communist Party member who was reading the Gospels. He was reading some of Jesus' teachings, especially the Sermon on the Mount. All this stuff about sharing, about generosity, about giving yourself to others. And he read this and he said, without any hint of um, irony or humor, he said, this Bible is a load of rubbish. This Jesus guy, he's just ripped off communism. Not really aware of the 2,000 year gap uh, where Jesus is first and communism later. But Jesus has that counseling ability, the ability to address some of the deepest problems that our society faces. 
And we see that on a really personal level as well. Some of Jesus' most common associates, as you look through the Bible, are prostitutes, the most despised and vulnerable women in society. Somehow they feel safe with Christ. They feel like they can come to him with their shame, with their situations, whatever has landed them in this position. And Jesus doesn't condemn them, but he somehow is able to counsel them in that. We see that Jesus is an everlasting father as well. And that's a striking phrase. Those two words put together, everlasting father. I think a traumatic incident in every single person's life is when your father disappears. No human father is everlasting. And whether you have a really great father and they die one day, either suddenly or when you expect it, or whether you had a father who left before you were even born, Jesus, an everlasting father, able to bring these two things together, able to meet people such that they never feel this lack. And that's what we see when he calls 12 disciples to come and follow him. 12 young men, fishermen. He calls them and he says, come follow me. I'll teach you how to be a man. I'll teach you what it is to live. I'll show you what it means to live a good life. Jesus, the everlasting father. We see him also in this next slide. Not only is he taking responsibility, but his government, his peace, will continue to increase. And how will he do it? Not through corruption, not through self-centeredness. He will do it with justice and with righteousness. Justice and righteousness, something that seems sorely lacking in many of our politicians. But this is what Jesus is going to do. And at the end of all that, you just think, well, of course Jesus is, therefore, this last phrase. He's a prince of peace. He's facing the real problems of society, and he's able to address them. He is answering the real questions that people face, and he's got this wisdom that has lasted thousands of years. I can see now how Jesus has achieved peace. But there's something almost quite crushing about this, because as we hear about Jesus, it doesn't so much G me up and think, oh, yes, I can do this as well. I can achieve this for myself. It makes me think, I can't be like this. I can't achieve these things. If this is what it takes to be a prince of peace, if this is what it takes for me to leave my life and to depart with peace, how am I meant to live up to this guy? He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. How am I meant to compare with him? There's something quite crushing about being compared to Jesus, about seeing him as the standard. I just think about him as the wonderful counselor and how... Friends, colleagues sometimes come to me asking for advice. Children as well at school. And I hear their problems and I don't know what to say. I'm not really sure how to help them. Jesus talks about himself as the everlasting father. And I'm sure all of us have doubts whether we have children or not. What kind of parent am I going to be? What kind of husband? What kind of wife? What kind of friend am I going to be? Am I just able to really live up to this standard we hear him taking great responsibility on his shoulders government on his shoulders peace justice and righteousness and really i can't sometimes even take responsibility for myself i can't take responsibility for what we're having for lunch what we're having for dinner what to do about my socks always on the floor let alone justice righteousness in the world there's something pretty crushing, pretty damning about this comparison. 
And it's not even that I failed to be a counsellor, that I failed to be a father, that I failed to, be, uh, to take responsibility on my shoulders. It's actually, if I'm honest with myself, if I'm honest before you, it's that I sometimes and often do the opposite. Instead of solving people's problems, often I'll create them for them. Instead of taking on responsibilities, I will shirk them. I will fail to do things that I've promised to others. I will treat people in ways that I shouldn't. I will not do my job as well as I ought. Instead of being an everlasting father, I, I hurt those who are closest to me. And Christmas is a really clear way where we see that happening, where we spend a lot of time with our loved ones, with those who are close to our hearts, and yet we say things that we regret. Or in a moment of irritation, we, we let slip something from our tongue and we wish we hadn't said it. Or someone just gets on our nerves, even though we love them and we care about them and we want the best for them. Our words don't counsel. They so often hurt. Gossip, back chats, envy. We're not trying to solve other people's problems. We're jealous, in fact, when their problems are solved. We're envious that they have managed to get a mortgage on their house or they have managed to find a partner whilst we're still feeling quite lonely. We don't take responsibility for other people's problems. In fact, we use people to alleviate our own sense of weight, whether that's through lust, through greed, through ambition. As we think about it, as we look honestly at our hearts, there is something really challenging about this comparison with Jesus. So, our lives lack peace. Our lives lack peace because we face problems and we have questions. We lack a weight about them. Jesus shows the way forward. He shows, no, this is how you live. You need these attributes about yourself. But we compare ourselves to him and it just feels a bit irritating. It feels a bit unfair, really, to be compared to such a high standard. Well, in fact, Simeon actually predicted this when he talked about what Jesus was going to come to do. Just have a look from the um, start of this passage here. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce for your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. When we compare ourselves with Christ, it is exposing of our hearts. It is, as Carl was praying, it is light upon the darkness, the rottenness, the corruption that is in here. And our natural defense mechanism wants to say, that's not fair, I don't want to be compared with the Son of God. And this is what Simeon is saying. This child is appointed for the fall of many. We will see this sign, and we will instinctively want to oppose it to try and defend ourselves. But just think about that for a second. If we are thinking it's unfair to be compared to Jesus, do we really want God's standards to be any lower? If you're not a Christian here today, well, you want Christians to be able to be living as counselors, to be faithful fathers, to be taking responsibility on their shoulders. You want that for yourself. You want that for your friends. You want to be able to turn to people. If we say this standard is too high, well, that's not how we want others to live for us. It's pretty hypocritical. But yet, if we accept this standard, then we realize just how clearly we fall short. And this is actually another answer to why we lack peace. We can't say, I'm ready to die in peace, because as we think about meeting our maker, 
Whether you think you definitely will, or you think there's just a tiny chance that you might. How can we say to them, yeah, I've lived the good life. I've lived the meaningful life. I've been a wonderful counselor to my friends. I've taken great responsibility and done it well with justice and righteousness on my shoulders. I've been a good father. How can we say those things with a clear conscience? And that leaves us in a situation where we lack peace both in this life, but we lack peace as we think about the life to come. We fall short of God's standards and we deserve his condemnation. And it's not a comfortable thought. And that again is what leads us to think about turning to pleasure, turning to cynicism as a way of coping with these things. It feels like an impossible dilemma. It feels like an impossible dilemma. We want this standard, but we fall short of this standard. We want to adjust that standard, but we don't apply that to other people. How are we going to resolve our lack of peace with God? Well, as I finish, I want to clarify, that is the good news of Christmas. There is a key principle here. The good news of Christmas is that this dilemma can and has been resolved. And before you can take Jesus as your standard, you've got to take Jesus Christ as your saviour. I'll say that again. Before you can take Jesus as your standard, you have got to take him as your saviour. Because what happens is, if Jesus is just your standard, he will crush you. You'll feel oppressed by the weight of what it means to be good. But if Jesus is your saviour, he will save you. And he has saved you. What do I mean by that? Well, just think about it like this. Imagine that you're trying really hard. You have a life's ambition to be the world's fastest man. You want to run 100 meters, 200 meters faster than any human being has ever run before. And then this chap called Usain Bolt happens to turn up and you compare yourself to him. You see his physical attributes, unparalleled height, unparalleled strength. And you just think to yourself, my dream, my standard, it's in tatters. I can't meet this. You just give up hope. But imagine you're trapped in a burning building and your legs are not able to get you out. And just coming down the stairwell, you see Usain Bolt. There's no one else you want to pick you up, put you on his shoulders, and sprint out of that building as fast as you possibly can. If he's your standard, it will crush you. But if he is your savior, he will rescue. And it's the same, but much more profoundly, profoundly so, with Jesus Christ. Just forget about us being counselors. Forget about us being um, everlasting fathers. Forget about us taking responsibility on our shoulders. We need someone to do that for us. We need a wonderful counsellor to address the deepest problems of our heart, to address the lack of peace that we all feel about life and about death, to address the gaping gulf between God's standard for us and where we actually are. We need someone to take us upon his shoulders. And Jesus is the one who did. How did he do this? How did he do this? Well, even though he was the one, he was the one who deserved to end his life in perfect peace, lying on a hospital bed in a calm setting, surrounded by his family and friends, able to say, I've had a good life. I've done what I can. Even though Jesus is the only person who has deserved that in all of human history, how did he die? How did he die? Christmas, it's connected to Easter. Simeon sees us, even from the moment he sees baby Jesus. This sign will be opposed. A sword will pierce through Mary's heart as she sees her son going through an unimaginably horrible death. Jesus, the one who deserved to die in peace, 
he goes to a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying and he's sweating blood. He has a complete lack of peace. Jesus, the one who left the peace of heaven, comes into this world and lives a perfect life. And yet on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, the one person who deserved a perfect, blissful death, he dies the most agonizing, horrible death as he's forsaken by his followers. He's forsaken by God himself. How? He doesn't deserve this, uniquely of all of us, because he has put us on his shoulders. He has taken responsibility for our sins. He has said, humans, we lack that ability to achieve peace, but I will pay. He is the one who is an everlasting father. I remember when I was 18 and I crashed my dad's car by reversing into a parked car late at night. I remember just getting home and feeling quite anxious about what my dad would say. And he just said, I'm glad you've learned your lesson. Don't worry about it. I will pay. I will pay. And Jesus, he is the everlasting father who sees the mess that we've made, who sees how far we fall short. And he says, I will pay. I will pay for your sins. I will pay for the lack of peace between you and God. I will make peace by taking the death that we deserve and living the life that we should have lived. That's why Simeon can sing this song. He's not just seeing a role model to follow. He's not just seeing someone who's able to answer problems. He's seeing someone, this baby. He is able to answer our deepest problems. And he bursts out into song saying, I can die in peace. You're letting your servant die in peace according to your word, according to those promises you've made in the Old Testament. For my eyes have seen your salvation, God's rescue of us that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation, Jesus revealing this is the way to his father. This is the way for a relationship with God. This is a way to answer the fundamental anxieties and the lack of peace in our heart. And for glory, he is the one who shows us such weight, such integrity, such holiness that our lives can actually revolve around him. And what happens is that when we see Jesus as this, when we see him as salvation, as revelation, as glory, when we see him as the answer to our problems, the solution to our questions, and this weighty character, that is what frees us to actually live a life where we seek peace for others too. When we see just how much Jesus loves us, when we see him as our father who has taken responsibility for us, only then can I take responsibility for my family, for my friends. Only then can I try and counsel people with the counsel that I have received from Jesus himself. The pleasure of seeing him, the pleasure of knowing his love and his forgiveness, that is what lets me say no to just pursuing cheap pleasures as a way to satisfy me. The hope of seeing how he has rescued me and done so much in my heart and life, that is what helps me protect myself from cynicism. And the glory that he reveals as this one man who did not deserve it, but he took on my sin, he took on my flesh, he took on my problems, the glory that we see there is the help that we need to live a meaningful life and to die, just like Simeon, in complete peace. That's my prayer that this Christmas you will know something of that peace for yourself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ, this Prince of Peace, 
Father, thank you that you saw us in our darkness. You saw just how lost and how unable to achieve peace we are in ourselves. And you sent your son to make peace, to be a peace offering, to lay down his life in our place, that we might receive counsel, that we might have an everlasting father, that we may have a prince of peace in our own lives, that we may be part of his government, his kingdom, his reign. Father, we pray we would see him more clearly this Christmas time. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to now have a reflection song Steph and Michelle are going to play. So please stay seated for this as we just reflect on all we've heard from God's word.
Okay, another reading from Scripture to continue.